Well, good morning, and how are you all doing? Good. Yes, well, today I have the privilege to start us into a series of sermons that uh, we're thinking of calling it Selections in, in Ephesians. Um, it's not gonna, we're not going to go through all the passages in Ephesians, but uh, for the next, I would say, six to seven weeks or so, um, there's going to be people here coming to share the word on Ephesians. And um, so today we're starting with uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll go to that chapter in a minute. Um, before we do, we do that, there's this verse, this, uh, not this verse, but this, yeah, this verse. In the song that we sang just now, uh, Jesus, your mercy, the first verse in that song says, Jesus, your mercy is all my plea. I have no defense. My guilt runs too deep. The best of my works pierce your hands and your feet. Jesus, your mercy is all my plea. So please join me in a prayer that we'll have this in our minds and our hearts as we go into the word. Father, we pray in this morning that you will help us. Lord, help us to be mindful of of the work that you have done in Christ, Lord, to bring us to yourself. Father, thank you for the blessing of salvation. Thank you for the fact that we could not save ourselves, Lord. The best of our works put you on the cross. So please, we pray that you will help us to be mindful of all these things that we'll talk today and as we go through Ephesians, Lord, that that this is not something that is in ourselves, Lord, but it is only by your gracious work and by um, just your love for us, Lord, that we can be with you. So open up our minds and our hearts in this morning. Help us to be attentive to, to the sermon today and to just the work that you're doing in our hearts, Lord, through your Holy Spirit. We praise you and we thank you and we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So, you know, self-sufficiency, right? Self-sufficiency is inherent in our nature. We are continually driven by this deep-rooted sense to prove to ourselves that we have what it takes to make it in life. Um, We want to feel the satisfaction that we can accomplish things, that we have accomplished a bunch of things, and um, we made an effort and that it worked, that our success is the result of just our works or that we have gone through a situation and it, it, we made it through and it was on our own. Um, and this is continually um, imparted in our, in our culture to us. There's a lot of do-it-yourself messages, you know, like you have a bunch of this new, um, well, I don't, I don't know if new, but TikTok, is that kind of new? Young people, is that new? No, kind of. All right. Um, you have all these messages highlighting the power to self, you know, to do the things, uh, to do whatever you, you want to do and whatever you need to do in the best way that you think is possible. So the less outside help that we receive from others means that our, our merits will be greater, that our, our glory will be greater because we did, we did it by ourselves. So in a good way, I see this tendency in, in our son, Santiago. Uh, you know Santiago, right? He's three years old. Uh, and he's in this very exciting stage in his life 
when he wants to be more and more independent. He wants to do things on his own. And he's learning to do a lot of new fun things, like he's learning to, to uh, write the letters, to cook with Kayla, to make coffee, um, to put on his clothes, to vacuum, to change, um, um, just to, yeah, to change his clothes, to water the plants. I was gonna say to do house repairs, but I'm not very good at that, so I'm not good, a good example for him. Um, but it is great to see him attempting to do all these things uh, by himself, uh, to do all these activities with, with our help, but he's at a point where he wants to do everything by himself. So whenever we try to help him with something, he would say, no, 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 it's, it's, it's my turn, el turno de Santiago, it's, it's my turn, it's Santiago's turn. So sometimes we let him do these things on his own, sometimes we do not, uh, depending on whatever it is that we need to do. But he always tries to accomplish, accomplish all these tasks by himself. And to be honest, it, is, it can be a bit frustrating, you know, especially when we're in a hurry, like we need to come to rehearsal and he wants to tie his shoes or do whatever he wants to do. Um, so it's, it's a, a little bit frustrating. But in a sense, Santiago's self-sufficiency is suspected. And you know, it's even encouraged by his parents because that is ultimately the goal of parenting. You know, you want to get your children to uh, depend less on you for a life as you teach them how to grow and how to mature, to make it on their own, independently. But that is not the case for us as children of God. As we live in this world, our goal must be that we must come to depend more, uh, we must come to depend less on ourselves and depend more and more and more on God, on our Heavenly Father. Self-sufficiency, has no room in the Christian life. And by self-sufficiency, I mean the attempt to live by our own means and without regards for God's compassionate help, for his wise direction, or ultimately for his gracious salvation in our lives. So how often do we as Christians um, live or try to make it in life in this way? in our relationships and our own responsibilities, we become so invested in living in a way uh, that, in our own way, that neglects what God has said and what is his will for our lives. We become invested in accomplishing things through our own efforts. Um, and we forget that there's nothing that we can do apart from God's help. So in light of this, uh, it is helpful to consider what the blessing of salvation, uh, uh, to consider the blessing of salvation that we have received from God in the first place. This blessing has nothing to do with what we have done or what we can do or that, or that what we will do. Nothing to do with our strength or with our works. So the blessing of salvation initiates with God. It is achieved through God and it is for God's glorious purpose, as we will see in Ephesians 2. And this is the main idea. This is one of the main ideas in Ephesians. Um, Paul, in chapter 1, you can, if you want, you can go through chapter 1 real quick. Um, and we don't, we're not going to read this passage, but he gives us, he gives the readers, he gives the Ephesians and us today 
a wonderful description of the spiritual blessings that God the Father has blessed us has blessed us with. So his intention is to encourage them and encourage us to live holy and blameless lives before the Lord. And let's keep that in mind as well. His encouragement is for us to live holy and blameless lives before the Lord in light of the many gracious and spiritual blessings that we have received from him. So from chapter one, verse three to 23, Paul reminds them, the Ephesians, that they have been chosen in Christ, predestined in his plan, adopted to himself, redeemed through his blood, forgiven of their trespasses, lavish with the riches of his grace, guaranteed an inheritance, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He reminds them that because of the great work of Christ, because of his rule, his power, his dominion, his authority over all things in this world and beyond this world, they will benefit from the fullness of God's presence and enjoy uh, to be with him forever in God's glory. So Paul prays that the Ephesians will have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. They will open their eyes so that they can understand how the only cause for their salvation is God's immeasurable power that worked through Christ and not of, of, of ourselves. And then three times he also affirms in this passage that the blessing of salvation is to the praise of his glory. And it will be a good ex exercise to highlight all these things some other time as you go through that. All the spiritual blessings that we have received from God and the purpose of those blessings. It is to the praise of his glory. So if there's any sense in us or in the Ephesians to believe that they could accomplish anything towards their salvation in their self-sufficiency, they were wrong. And if at any point of our lives we feel that we can work toward our salvation or that we deserve or are worthy of salvation, then we are wrong as well. God has done everything on our behalf and we need to trust in his sufficient and superior work. So in our text today, in Ephesians chapter two, verses one to 10, Paul develops this idea and addresses three main aspects of salvation. From verse one to three, we'll see uh, what is the need for salvation. Then for verses four to six, we're gonna see how, because of this need, God has started this process of salvation on our behalf. And then from verses seven to 10, he's going to highlight what is the purpose of salvation. So the need, the process, and the purpose of salvation. But why is it, why is it important to know all these things or to consider all these things? It's because the salvation of our souls is the most crucial and significant element of our lives. Every, all of who we are and everything that we do is significantly influenced by this reality. The way that we relate to our spouse, the way that we parent our children, the way that we serve in the church, the way that we work, just everything is grounded on the truth of our salvation. So from verses one to three, we'll, we'll see now 
What is the need for salvation? And in this opening statement for Paul, he bluntly puts us in perspective. He's saying, what is our condition before we were being saved? Before we were saved? It says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And clearly here, he's not talking about a physical death or an emotional death or a, um, a intellectual death or volitional death. But um, because you can see unsaved people are living. They're breathing, they're living their lives, they're doing everything else that we're doing thinking, feeling, and emotions, but he's speaking here of a spiritual death, which means to be completely separated and deprived of God's powerful and relational presence. So this condition of deadness is more severe than we sometimes consider. This condition of deadness springs from our very nature of children of wrath, as it says in verse 3. And all of humanity suffers from this condition. In this nature, we're prone to walk in the course of this world that is governed by Satan. And we're bound to follow a path of disobedience uh, and unfaithfulness. In this nature, we live to please uh, and gratify ourselves with the passions of our flesh. Our emotions are distorted, our minds are corrupted, and we seek after uh, every, whatever it is that our bodies desire to obtain. And this nature has, it's an, has an overwhelming and horrific effect on, on everything that we are, our emotions, our intellect, our volition, and our spirit. This nature causes us to, to be affected so horribly by sin. And in this state, we're not children of God, we're children of wrath. We're sons of disobedience. It is interesting that Paul uses the analogy of children or sons to illustrate uh, our sinful state. And I say interesting because Paul didn't have children, but I think that he had a good sense of that dynamic as well. Um, because, you know, Kayla and I, we agree that we really understood what sinful nature was after we had kids. Yes. Why do you laugh? <laughs> you, know, you know our children, right? You know Santiago, you know Matias. They're three and one years old. And we are very intentional in teaching them all good things. We are uh, teaching them uh, Bible verses, uh, the colors, letters, songs. Um, and they are learning, well, as, as well as you guys who have children are doing as well. You know, we, we're being intentional in teaching them good things. Um, and they're learning, learn, learn, they are learning these things, but we're not teaching them to be selfish. Yet, when it comes to sharing their toys, they can be pretty selfish. We, um, because it is not, not natural for them to share with one another. We do not teach them to be violent, you know, but sometimes it happens, they push each other, they pull their hair, there's the occasional car toy in the head, like, <laughs> so it's, I mean, I tell them, do not wrestle, hmm? do not wrestle, not to wrestle your neighbor, 
So, um, yeah, it's, it's, these are natural responses to their, their, their frustrations they might be having. Uh, we do not teach them to disobey us, but it's easy for them to disobey us. But more than easy, it is natural for them to disobey us. Matias is the youngest, and uh, one day he was eating lunch, um, and I thought, and he thought that it was very fun to, go, to pick some food off his plate and just like drop it on the floor. And I told him, I approached him and said, Mati, do not throw food on the floor. And he understands the meaning of no. He is, he is very smart. He understands. He knew what, what I was saying. And still, you know what happens. Without taking his eyes from me and giving me this look, like defiantly, like, just grab a couple of food, more food. And drop her on the floor. And I was shocked. I was like, <laughs> the first thought that came to my mind was sinful nature. Sinful nature. Yes. So this, this, this story, this anecdote may sound funny to all of us. You know, even Kayla and I try not to laugh through some of these things. We don't want to do that. Uh, because, they're, you know, they're children. They you know, eventually they grow and learn how to be obedient to their parents and respect their parents, right? Yeah? <laughs> Amen? <laughs> We're praying. You know, but it is not as funny when we consider that the same proneness to disobedience and disrespect is at work within us. It stops being funny when we consider that our inherent inclination to walk in trespasses and sins makes us deserving of God's wrath. We have trespassed God's law. He has commanded us to live in a certain way and we have chosen to disobey his command. We have sinned against God and therefore we are dead in our trespasses and sins. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 to 19, Paul gives a more precise description of what this deadness entails. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God, and highlight that, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, Due to, their, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. So ultimately, being dead in trespasses and sins means to be alienated from the life of God. Our senses are so callous by sin that we are unable to acknowledge the glory of God and unable to seek to walk in His ways. We're so immersed in darkness that our hearts, in, in our hearts, we fail to see his light. We cannot desire to do his will. We cannot desire to follow his direction. We seek to live by our self-gratification in the self-sufficiency of our hearts. It doesn't mean that we're unable to do things like physically or thinking or emotions or, or uh, just doing things, but it means that in all of our physical motions, in all of our emotions, our feelings, in the decisions that we make, in all these things, there's this deadness inside of us. 
that impedes us to live according to the will of the Father. It's a deadness that paralyzes us. A deadness that has terrible effects in our lives, in our relationships, and in in our responsibilities. So yes, there is a need for a savior. There is a need for salvation. That is what we'll see in verses four to six when we come to the process of salvation. Let's read together the first two words of verse four. Let's read it together. I will, I will count to three to make it more organized. One, two, three. But God. Just the first two words. <laughs> Let's read it again. But God. And this is such a powerful statement. Notice that God, that Paul does not begin by saying, but you. But you were actually not that bad. But you deserve to be saved from all of this. But you did some good things. No. It's but God. And these two words are brimming with love, with mercy and grace, and hope from the Lord for our poor and needy souls. He's the author the sustainer, the perfecter of our salvation. Once we were alienated from the life of God in our filthiness, in our trespasses and sins, but God. Once we were walking in the ways of this world according to the will of Satan, but God. Once we were were enslaved to the passions and desires of our flesh, of our souls, but God. Once we were sons of disobedience, children of wrath, but God. Once we were dead, but God. So bask for a moment in the beauty of these words that I will read in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 to 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen. So, but God should not be understood in the sense that God is relenting from his wrath unto those who have rebelled from him, who have rebelled against him, and the eternal consequences that our disobedience has. God's wrath wrath towards sin is still a very real thing. Those who choose to live separated from God will ultimately experience the fullness of his wrath. Yet, but God reverses our condition of deadness into being alive in Christ. In these verses, Paul wants us to see that the foundation of this reversal, it's God's merciful, gracious, and loving nature. It is not from any inherent goodness within us of our, our merits that we possess, but salvation flows from only from the God's grace. We were still dead in trespasses and sins and could do nothing about it, but God, from the riches of his mercy, from the endless supply of his grace, and in his unconditional and everlasting love for all of us, 
made us alive with Christ. Even though we deserve death and condemnation and separation, he changed our nature from sons of disobedience, from children of wrath to be children of God. I want to read this passage in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 to 7. It says, The Lord passed before him. This is God speaking to Moses when Moses asked for him to see his face, God, for Moses to see God's face. And says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So this is the very nature of God. This is his revelation for us. But how is it that a God who is merciful and gracious, right? A God that abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, that forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, how does not he clear the guilt? How does not he pour his wrath upon sin? It is only through Christ. Only by looking at the cross, we can understand this amazing aspect of God's nature where at the cross, God's justice and mercy met with Jesus's righteousness and his love and his goodness. And he took on our trespasses and our sins and submitted himself as a substitute to die in our place, to, to pay for the, the price that we could not pay. So there on the cross, he clear, he did not necessarily clear our guilt, but he became guilty for us. He became guilty for us. He uh, took the place that we deserved. So all his wrath and his justice were poured on Jesus so he could die for us. So now we're made alive. We're made alive. We don't have to obey the, our tendency to sin. We are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but we are alive in Christ. We don't need to gratify the desires of our passions to seek after our self-gratification after our flesh, but we can obey God and we can do all these things for his glory. It is by his mercy and by his grace that we have been saved. And that phrase right there, by grace you have been saved. The Greek for that, the Greek word for you have been saved is just one word that says, uh, it's sesosmenoi. And this word, um, the grammatical construction of this is, is the perfect passive participle. Um, two important things to consider about these words is that first, the perfect tense in Greek um, indicates a little bit more than it does for English or Spanish. It has a particular nuance that sometimes is missed in translation. When you see a, a perfect passive participle or a perfect tense, it is used to describe an action that was completed in the past, but the effects of this action are still felt in the present. There's an ongoing effect that is happening in the present and on. 
So Paul's intention using the perfect tense is to emphasize the continuing results um, of, our, of salvation in our lives. Salvation is an ongoing part of our lives. Or in this sense, it is valid for us to consider salvation not only as a moment that happened in the past, but the full scope of salvation as a process. And we have words like, like salvation has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And we use words like justification, sanctification, and glorification. So imagine we're all on a cruise and we're sailing to beautiful shores of Venezuela. Yes. <laughs> that would be great. We're all there. We're going to see the mangrove trees at the beach there. But suddenly there's a great thunderstorm that breaks in the, on the sea. And this thunderstorm causes us to shipwreck. We're all floating in these dangerous waters, fearing for our lives. And then the Coast Guard appears, shows up, and rescues all of us. We're all safe. We, all of us made it. Praise the Lord. No one, yeah. So we're all in this new boat with the Coast Guard. Um, we're safe. But outside, the storm's still raging on. There is still, we're still in a sense, experiencing the effects of the storm. You know, the storm might dissipate, but it might not. But we are safe on the boat through the storm. And it is only when we get to the beautiful shores of Venezuela that we we will be ultimately be safe. So the parallel to this illustration is that passing from this sinking ship into the new boat, it, it's the moment where our salvation initiates. It's the moment of our justification. We were declared justified by God. And then the dangerous journey through uh, in, this, um, in this new boat where we're safe, but we're in this dangerous journey is the process of our sanctification where God is working in, through his spirit in our lives to make us more like him. And then finally, Reaching the shores of Venezuela is the consummation of our salvation, where we will enjoy the full blessing of salvation in a glorified state. It is the time when his kingdom will be fully established in, in everywhere in the world, everywhere. So the point here is, and this is an encouragement to us, that God's grace never leaves your side. His grace has saved you and his grace will sustain you through your life on this earth and his grace will lead you to safely arrive in home. So second, consider that the participle here is in the passive voice as well. So professional writers, I don't know if we have any professional writers here, we might, but professional writers advise avoiding passive voice as much as possible when you're writing, right? My brother Stephen can... You're a professor, right? You can tell me, you're a teacher. You can tell me that this is true. But um, I love passive voice. And I always have like people, you know, no passive voice. So, um, but in this passage in Ephesians 2, praise the Lord for the passive voice. Because you know what that means? That we're not the subject of the sentence. We're not. Someone else is doing the saving on our behalf. We're not doing the action. Someone else is acting. 
the agent enacting salvation in this sense, in this sentence, is the powerful and sublime and amazing grace of God. It is God who is rich in mercy. It is God who loved us when we were dead. It is God who made us alive in Christ. He's the only one who's able to bring us safely home. So we've seen there's a need for salvation. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We're seeing how God has made us alive by his grace. And now we'll see what is the purpose of salvation. So from verses seven to 10, what is the purpose of this? What is the purpose of salvation? As I said before in chapter one, Paul highlights three times that ultimately the blessing of salvation it is, is to the praise of the glory of God. And then from verses seven to 10, he elaborates more on how God accomplishes his glorious purpose so that any sense of self-sufficiency um, that is in us or self-glorification is eradicated from our hearts. And likewise, he tells us how we can glorify our dear savior in response to the grace that we have received. Verse seven states that the reason why we have been made alive, the reason why we have been saved by grace is so that in the coming ages, in the days to come during our time here on earth and then after, um, that, we would, that God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So God uses our salvation, the fact that we have gone from death to life to display the greatness and the majesty of his love for us in a way that all people in the world will see. So people should not, when people look at our lives, they should not be saying, wow, how great, how great Stan Ferris, you know, he's wonderful people. He's great. Yeah, that is true. But... um, they don't need to say how great Debbie Bradford or how wonderful Rachel James, Glenn Howard. No, they should be saying, how great is our God? Amen. Our lives should be point to the glory and the majesty of Christ as we live our lives as a reflection of his image for everyone to see his glory and his grace. They just scream and say, not scream, but just like shout, how great is our God? How vast the riches of his mercy and his grace. How amazing his love and kindness and how good is our savior, Jesus Christ. For we were dead in our trespasses and sins, so terribly hopeless and helpless and desperate, but God made us alive in him. Our lives ought to point people to the glory of the gospel, to the glory of Christ. Second Corinthians chapter four, verse five and six says that what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So this is not about ourselves. There's not a point on salvation when this is about ourselves. It is for the glory of God. There's no room for self-glorification as chapter two, verse eight and nine says. The blessing of salvation is a gift from God, not a result of our works, 
and certainly not because we deserve it. Salvation results from the gracious and sufficient work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. In our sinful nature, we could not do anything to save ourselves from God's wrath. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. All our righteous deeds are like filthy garments, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Isaiah 64, 6. So no amount of good or righteous works on our account could remove the guilt that we have. No amount of good works could eradicate the punishment that we had, that we deserve. And if our works counted for anything, then it wouldn't, it wouldn't be grace. It would stop being grace. Consider the, the thief on the cross. Consider the thief on the cross. He did not have the opportunity to balance uh, his, his bad deeds with good works. He didn't get that. He only believed. And I believe that indeed today, he is in paradise with his Savior. So therefore, our salvation, it is not so we can boast about how great our works are or how great we can be, but, but so that we magnify the gracious gift of God. It is in Christ alone, by Christ alone, through faith alone, faith alone, and only for the glory of God. The only value that our works have is that after we have been made alive in Christ, our good works do display the goodness and the glory of our creator. In verse 10, it says, um, he says that, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In, all, in another portion, uh, Matthew chapter 5, 14 and 16, he says that you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So yes, we ought to do good works because in doing so, we show God's glory to those who are in the darkness of this world, who are immersed in his death, condition of deadness. And they can come to life. They can come to the light in Christ. That is the purpose of our good works. So if you're here today and you have not still put your faith in Christ, do not wait. If the Holy Spirit here is convicting you with the truth of God's word, acknowledge your spiritual condition and surrender your life to God. He will make you alive in Christ. Please do not rely on your works. Do not be self-sufficient because none of these things will count for your salvation but rely on God's grace and his gift of eternal life that he has for you. Come to Christ today. 
bow your heads and say, dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Please forgive me for the way I have lived my life. Tried, I tried to live away from you, from your purposes, for my own glory and my glorification. Take my heart and make it yours. Thank you for the gift of salvation and help me walk in this newness of life that you have purchased for me. I confess that you are the Savior and Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Come before him. Do not wait. So what are we to do more in light of this passage of Ephesians? What, what else can we do? I just want to highlight a few things. First, we must remember that there is no room for self-sufficiency. In a way, some level of self-sufficiency is, as I said, is encouraged and is good in, in Santiago and Matias and in our children uh, as they grow and learn about life. But for us, any sense of self-sufficiency is an offense against our, our Savior who saved us by his grace. Not by our merits, not by our works, but by his grace. The only thing that we can bring to our salvation, you know what it is? It's our sin. That's the only thing we bring. There's nothing that we can contribute for this. We cannot say, God, no, God, this is, no, this is my turn. I'm going to do things on my way here. No, we need to stop depending on our own strength and efforts. And we need to rely on God's gracious and glorious work in Christ that influences every area of our lives. It shapes our relationships. It grounds our re responsibilities. It affects everything that we do. And second, we must not walk in the course of this world, you know, in our trespasses and sins as sons of disobedience and children of wrath, as we once walk according to verses one and two. We, we must stop doing that. We must walk as it says in verse 10, in good works that God prepared before for all of us to, to, to do and to display his, his greatness and his, and his glory. We must live holy and faithful lives of obedience to the Father who has made us his children. It is the blessing of his salvation. The blessing of his salvation is not the result of our works, but is his grace. And the third application today does not come from this letter to the Ephesians, not from the one that we're seeing today, but from another letter to the Ephesians that is in Revelation chapter two. In Revelation chapter two, verses one to five, this church of the Ephesians received another letter and it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So judging from this passage, the Ephesians, you know, apparently they got Paul's point on the first letter they received because first they, they, it seems that they maintain a sound doctrine. No false prophet could come and tell them any lies about the gospel. Like you have to work for your salvation. If someone did that, it seems that they would be able to respond uh, according to that in a correct manner. And second, they also seem to live in a good way. They were, they were walking in good works because they receive an encouraging and positive message from the angel here. They were, they were doing some things right, um, but they had abandoned their first love. So Grace Church, let us not abandon our first love. Moving away from self-sufficiency does not come from approaching our Christian life as yet one more task to do in our, Christian, in our, in our, in our to-do list. It's not that we have, do not be self-sufficient. Check. No, that does not work. But as our love for God increases, while we bask in the beauty and the greatness of his grace that has moved us from death to life and changed our nature from children of wrath to children of God, as we bask in this beauty, so our need and dependence and reliance on him grows in all things. So it is in his grace that we can love him. In a few minutes, we're going to sing a song that says, hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain, there's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. So yes, sing this song, but truly praise the Lord. Not just say these words, but sing them with understanding. Sing them with understanding. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Yes, I was bound to disobedience and wrath and could not tell myself, myself free, but he has set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. Yes, I was dead in my trespasses and sin, and now I'm alive in him. You have broken every chain. Yes, I'm no longer in the bondage to the passions of this world and the desires of my flesh. There is salvation in your name. Yes, it is by grace that I have been saved. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Yes, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope to glorify you all the days of my life in response to the hope of everlasting life that you have given me. So self-sufficiency, no, not at all. Love God with all your heart and grow deeper independence and reliance on him, knowing that you are alive by his grace and for his glory. Father, we come before your presence. We come acknowledging our state of brokenness and our sin of self-sufficiency, Lord. So we praise you and thank you for helping us to consider 
that the blessing of salvation has nothing to do with our works, with the things that we think we can accomplish, but only, Lord, because of your grace and mercy. Help us. Help us, Father, because we cannot make it on our own. Help us to live this life glorifying your name in all things that we, that we do, in all things that we are, Lord, with everyone with who, who we encounter, and in all things, Father, that, that will glorify your name. We want to engage in those. Father, we bless you and we thank you for changing our hearts and for making us alive in you. So as we, as we sing this morning, as we continue to praise you, Father, May we sing hallelujah, praise the Lord for your wonderful work on our hearts. May we live life that glorify your name every day, Lord, until you return from us, for us. And we pray in your name, amen.